for those of you who are here last week, this be- we are in the second week of our summer Bible studies, and so in the summertime we like to go a little bit deeper. We like to talk about the more obscure books and obscure passages that we normally don't spend time in. And so today, second time in Ezekiel, last week we talked about Ezekiel himself and the problem with the Israelites. Today, we're going to talk about God's glory. This is a theme that we'll see in Ezekiel. But before we talk about glory, how many of you are fans of the History Channel? Great. Good. I like to watch documentaries, and I'll watch them, and Carrie's about 10 seconds into hearing the guy's voice on there, and she'll go, can we watch anything else? And I say, yes, record, and then when she goes to to deal with the kids, I turn it back on real quick and and watch it. But I was watching this one the other night, not really sleeping much, and uh, there was this this whole, I don't know what it was, but they they take their cameras and their technology, and they go through uh, um, these old cities, and they rebuild what the city used to look like before, like, or in that time. It's fascinating. So they were in Rome, and Rome actually looked good. And they, they go to the Colosseum, and they digitally remaster what the Colosseum may have looked like in this impressive structure that it was. It shows the seats, all of the underground things that would have been there, where the gladiators came out, and they did a whole rework of how they used to make battlefields. It was fascinating. I'm just loving it. And then, at the end of it, they, they show how it decayed over time and how it became ruined. And so you see this wonderful, what it used to be, and then you see how, over time, the glory of the Colosseum and the glory of Rome has uh, gone away. I saw something like this in England. Uh, we were there as a layover. We were coming back from South Africa. We had a 13-hour layover, and so my dad and I hopped on the tube, whatever it's called. Is it the tube? Yeah, the tube. We hopped on the tube, and we just spent the, uh, spent the day in London, and we went in and out of these old churches one of them was a cathedral. can't tell you. It felt like a cathedral. But I'm sitting in there. We're walking through, and it's this wonderful church. And there's stories about this church and how people met Jesus for the first time in this place, how there was a, a movement of the Spirit. People came in and left change, how it had an impact all over the world. And I'm reading all about this. And then I look around, and there's a coffee shop over there now. There's a tour. Uh, every 30 minutes you can go on a tour, and there's that. And this church is no longer functioning as a church. It's a museum. It's something that is not functioning as what it used to be. Uh, and, and so the, the glory, you can say, has departed. It's gone somewhere else. Uh, we see this all, all of the time. We see how things go from being, this is our normal depiction of glory and normally how life goes. There's this supreme athlete. Let's say it's uh, uh, today it's Mike Trout, right? We could all agree Mike Trout if you like baseball. But if you go back, it, it might go to, let's pick another angel, Albert Pujols. And then it might go back then. And before Pujols, it was the kid, Griffey. And then before that, it was another player. And we see how glory and how things, how people go from this wonderful athlete and how it just kind of age takes over and they decline and then the next thing pops up you see it in civilizations the peak of rome and then rome declines and other civilizations pop up these buildings they go from great and powerful and wonderful and now they're ruins this idea this is the idea of glory that you and i are used to it's temporary it's here for a minute and then it fades in the Bible, the idea of glory is something completely different. 
Jesus offers us a different type of glory that doesn't fade. In 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18, it says this, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who have unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, and we are being transformed with an ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so in the Bible, this idea of glory goes from, it doesn't fade, it starts and keeps growing. This is what glory meant in Scripture, which is opposite to what we see glory-like in, in, in our world. This is all, and, and it, glory in the Scripture isn't hinging on our governmental policies, it's not hinging on our ability, it's not hinging on the type of structure or things that we build, it's, it's talking about a freedom that comes when each of us displays the goodness of the character of God with greater clarity as we grow older. In other words, when we start walking with Jesus at this time, the more we walk with Jesus, the more glory should be increasing within us and glory should be seen around us. So, the older people in this room, you are more glorious than the younger people. It's good news, right? <laughs> younger people, you got some shoes to fill because we go from glory to glory. It's an ever-increasing glory. The older we get, the more in love with God we are for the, and the more love for people we show, the more we display mercy, joy, wisdom, patience, grace, and the beauty in Christ is more shown in us the more we know and are around Jesus. This is the fancy theological word, if you want to win at a Words with Friends, sanctification. The idea that you are growing in your faith, that you are moving forward, the ever-increasing glory. This is the vision that the Bible has for each and every one of us, that we would have an ever-increasing glory. This is God's desire. However, oftentimes when people look at Christians, when people look at the church, they see other things. When we think of the collective state of God's church and God's glory, and lately the evangelical church, people would say, in fact surveys say, that it's in a time of decay. People would argue that the glory has started to leave the church. And we need to pay attention to this. As we'll see in Ezekiel, as we'll see throughout the rest of Scripture, the glory is something that we need to keep mind to. So today, you have a blank bulletin, but I'm going to ask you three questions, or we're going to ask ourselves three questions. The first question today is, how does God's glory matter to me? So you're sitting here the past five minutes, you're like, yeah, big whoop, glory. Well, let's take a look at glory. Why does it matter? God's glory has been the topic of so many sermons, so many theology books. I have three or four on my shelf that are all about glory of God. There's a Hebrew version, there's a Neo-Calvinist version, there's everybody's version of what glory means. We've made it so much of a theological topic that it's become so esoteric that it doesn't even matter anymore. So let's return to scriptures. Uh, do you have your apps? Get them out. Bible app. If you don't, or if, you, if, if uh, write them down because we're going to go through a lot of them. We're going to look at the glory of God. Then we're going to see what happened in Ezekiel and then take down some warnings of what can happen to us. The first one is Isaiah 6, 2 through 4. Uh, above him, Isaiah is having this epic vision. Uh, above him were the seraphim, each with six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. Imagine how fast they can go if all six were in action. And they, call, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Next verse, Numbers 14.21. Any of you ever do sword drills when you were growing up? This is a great one. Numbers 14.21. Nevertheless, Moses writes, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth. Glory, God's glory is found in the earth. Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, one of the first ways that we come to recognize God's glory is by opening your eyes and looking around you. Romans 1 will talk about God's glory being witnessed just of itself to bring people towards Jesus. People can see how good, how great God is just by looking at creation, by looking around at the world we live in. But that's not it. There's more to God's glory. Humans are to show God's glory and character. The first thing we see about glory, it's evident in creation. The second one is it's evident in humans. After all, how, does God, how are we described in Genesis 2? Made in the image of God. Made with God's glory inside of us. Psalm 8 builds on this. Verses 4 and 5. What is mankind that you are mindful of, him, of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowded them and crowned them with glory and honor. Human beings are crowned with God's glory. Exodus 33, Moses comes down from the mountain and he goes back up and he's meeting with God. He's hashing things out with God over something that happened in previous chapters. And he says to God, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see it. And God and him have this little go about. And God says, cool. I'll show you my glory, but you can't see it dead on. You're going to have to see the remnants of it as I walk by. And in Exodus 33, 19, the Lord says, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God's glory is defined by his goodness. In fact, the very next chapter after Moses spends so much time with God in the midst of his glory, he comes back down and his face is completely covered or completely different than what it was when he went back there and it was creeping out the Israelites because they didn't know what to do with it. They saw him, he didn't look, and so Moses walked around with a veil. Moses began to display the glory of God. The glory of God is displayed in every single one of us when we, when we take hold of justice, mercy, generosity, peace, care for, caring for the poor, the least of these, the outcasts, the widow, and when we do this, we display God's goodness around us because that's who God is. So, glory is found in people, glory is found in creation, and then when you come to the New Testament, glory is found in human beings again. When you come to the New Testament, we'll find that God calls each and every single one of us a temple, meaning the glory of God is intended to, res- to reside in us. This is in Colossians 1, 27. To them he has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mercy, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's a big statement. The Christ is in you, and because he resides in you is the hope of glory. My three-year-old has this questioning tactic. He'll say, 
Daddy, what's that? And he'll point to like the guitar. I'll say, oh, that's a guitar. It plays music. Yeah, but what's it do? <laughs> it plays music. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but what's it do? And so this is one of those statements. You can look at it, and then he goes on and on because you can tell him what it does. And he doesn't, never really gets it. And we end up saying, hey, look, something's shiny. And he's distracted. I'm building into him ADD. Uh, but... <laughs> What, what, he, what this does, so we hear this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Uh, it, so what's this mean? It means that we are filled with the glory of Christ. But what's that do? It means that the life-giving force that is Jesus, the source of all generosity, the source of all justice, the source of all healing, mercy, love, relationships, serving, the source of that that is found in Christ, the glory of God, now resides in each and every one of you. Your calling, my calling, is that we are glory displayed for others for the rest of your life. No pressure. But that's what you are. You are a display of God's, God's glory. Because if the world is going to experience the, God, the goodness and glory of God, it will be most likely received through you, through how you live, through us, through the church. Now that is some pressure. But if the glory but because glory isn't what people usually see when they think of Christians or the church, and that's a problem. Because when people perceive the church as hate-filled, that's not glory. When people uh, when the church seems to be dismissive of poor or complacent about racism and sexism, that's a loss of glory. Or when the church seems smug about peoples who are, are marginalized, that's a loss of glory. But even further, we don't love la- when we don't love Jesus lavishly with our worship, when we become complacent with our relationship with God, there's a loss of glory. When Christianity is reduced to just a one-time decision of, yes, I'm going to heaven, yes, Jesus, come live in my heart, and that's it, we miss out on the glory that is there for us. There is a loss of glory. When Christ followers, when you and I adopt the same values as the prevailing culture, and we become riddled with the same materialism, consumerism, uh, the same addictions, the same body image problems, the same individualism, there's a loss of glory. This is what happened with Israel. And this is why they find themselves in exile. In Exodus 17, they were called to display God's glory. You will be a priest to the nations. This was their charge, but they lost it. And they lost the glory. They, didn't, they started adopting other things, and the glory was faded. And no one who looked at them saw God's glory. So, the next question we're going to ask... What happened to the glory? If this is the glory, what happened to it? There's another video that we're going to play. And so a dismayed Ezekiel, he begins to perform his task. And after about a year, he has another vision. This one is about the temple. He goes on this virtual tour of the temple, and he sees what's happening there in his absence, and it is not good. In the outer courtyard in front of the temple, he sees this large idol statue. And then he sees the elders of Israel worshiping other gods, both outside and inside the temple. And then he sees the women of Israel. They're worshiping a Babylonian god named Tammuz. And the vision ends with God's glorious throne chariot moving up and away from the temple. It's leaving, going east headed towards Babylon. Okay. 
God's glory left. There's more of the video. I think I loaded the wrong one. God's glory leaves. And what, what we see in, in Ezekiel chapter 8 through 11 is this slow progression of God being in the temple and then moving away, further and further away from the temple. The progression, as the video saw, begins in Ezekiel chapter 8. Verses 3 and 4, God takes Ezekiel, and it's funny, whenever you read, if you're reading Ezekiel, you'll notice that Ezekiel is not a lot of times going on his own willpower. In this section, God takes him, grabs him by the hair, couldn't get a hold of me, grabs him by the hair, and takes him to Jerusalem, like magically transported there, and then he sees what's happening in Jerusalem, in the very temple. There were abominations that were taking place. In chapter 9, the glory of God, this is in verse 3, the glory of God went up above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. So the glory of God sits above the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant and then it departs the Holy of Holies. It leaves the temple and it moves towards the threshold of the door. Then, as you continue on in Ezekiel, you get pictures. It goes through the town. It's a picture of it slowly leaving Jerusalem. It's exiting. In Ezekiel eleven twenty two, 22, uh, then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings, and the glory of God, the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountains to the east of it. It's like as though the glory of God, like the first vision with the wheels and the throne, it's wheeling itself out of town and it's going very slowly. But the scary part is, as it's leaving, nobody noticed. Nobody sees it going, but the glory of God, his goodness, his very presence is leaving. There are two things that, we, that happened in history of Israel that are important to us as we look at this glory of God leaving the temple. The first thing, for them, the glory of God was located above the Ark of the Covenant. How many of you have seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, that's where they thought that the glory lied. There was, on top of it, cherubims with their wings like this facing each other. And above there, was to, that is where they thought God lived. That was his address. In that time period, it's not, it's not uncommon that certain gods had certain addresses, that they were located in specific places. For this time, God's, re- God's presence rested there. He moved in, according to them, in the wilderness when they were walking through Exodus and the tabernacle and the tent. God met them there and God stayed there. Then, as they became less of a mobile people and they got a temple, God's glory resided in the temple. God's glory rested there. Again, on the Ark of the Covenant. So people began to assume that the Ark was where God was. That's where, that's where he would always be. And this led them to believing and trusting in forms that contained God's glory rather than the glory itself. So they would be more concerned about the temple, about the Ark of the Covenant, than they were about God. And it would prove that this would be fatal over time. In the wilderness, as long as they had the box with them, as long as they had the Ark of the Covenant with them, they had the glory with them. So what became the most important thing? The box, the Ark of the Covenant. So in 1 Samuel 4, uh, write this down if you want to read about it, when the Philistines defeated Israel, Israel thought the problem stemmed, the reason why they lost, they weren't used to losing, so this is just a bunch of excuses. In 1 Samuel 4, they lost because the ark wasn't with them. In verse 3, it says this, when the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders asked, 
Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today? Before the Philistines. Next time, let's bring the Ark of the, Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh so that he, he may go with us and save us from the hands of the enemies. So the form of God's presence, the box, became God's glory where God, with God's actual glory. And then the result of was this. When they went back into battle again and lost again, the Philistines took the Ark. It was captured by them. They took it off into their land, and then the people of Israel mourned. Why? Because they thought the glory of God had left them. Later, this view was, cha- was, was changed. As long as we are gathered in the temple, as long as we're here to worship, it doesn't matter what we do or who we worship here, we'll be fine. Why? Because God's glory is just here. And as long as we have the form of what God's glory looks like, it doesn't matter what we do. They started to confuse this, the, that, that as long as they had the right location, it didn't matter or not if they had the right heart. They'd come to think about something that was, they, they come thinking that something magical was happening inside the temple. And they continued to gather there, and as long as they were there, everything would be fine. Form became the most important thing. Form of worship became more important than the actual worship. And it's deadly for us as Christians because form then becomes both the, the sign of health and it becomes the source of every single debate. If we have the right music, then we, God's glory will be there. If we have the right teaching style, God's glory will be there. If we have the right teacher, God's glory will be there. If we meet at the right time, and it's the right temperature, and we have the right amount of smoke in our room, then God's glory will be there. You start seeing how we start to think that if we just tweak and do the right things, God's glory shows up. Back when they had the Great Awakening, the Great Awakening happened in the beginning of like 1700s. It was awesome. There was a movement. And then they had the second Great Awakening, and they thought this, if we can just duplicate everything that happened in the first Great Awakening, God's glory will happen again. It didn't happen that way because they started worshiping the form more than they started than they worshiped the God. They had their theology that was airtight. They didn't have words like inspired or infallible or inerrant. Or if they did, they had the right words in, in their theological statements. And that meant that God's glory was there. If they had the right devotional life, if we have the right sexual life, if we tithe, if we sing loud enough, if we go to church more than once a month, then we'll experience God's Glory. You see how form can take precedence over the Jesus that we worship. All that stuff is good, but all of that stuff is a, di- is a distant second and even fourth place when it comes to glory. The glory didn't depart because they were doing things wrong. The glory didn't depart because they weren't living perfectly or because they used different words, or they sang bad, or they had Folgers coffee instead of Zoka, or they didn't have Top Pot donuts, or the fruit wasn't there. That's not what caused the glory to leave. The glory of God didn't leave because the form was wrong. The glory isn't present or it's absent. It's not present or absent because what we do. It's present or absent based on the states of our hearts. This is what the book of Malachi is all about. It's present or absent because of the states of our hearts. That's why when the ark was stolen in, Ezekiel, in 1 Samuel 4, Samuel says the remedy isn't to sing louder. 
and do your worship right, the remedy is to return to God with all of your heart. In other words, what makes your worship real isn't that you have everything lined up perfectly. What makes the worship real is that you're actually in love with Jesus. Form will will rob you of the glory. I've seen God's glory move in places where the form was completely wrong. I used to plan chapels for uh, a university in Southern California, and there was 1,500 students in this auditorium for chapel. And then the sound system goes wrong. Turns out somebody was walking underneath the bleachers and accidentally kicked it and unplugged it. Took us forever to find that stupid plug. But during that time, there was a whole band on stage. The worship set was there. It was going to be awesome. God's glory was based in the worship set. But then all of a sudden, the worship band doesn't have any electricity. And it's just a dude there with an electric, with an acoustic guitar. So we think, chapel's ruined. There's no way possible that this is going to happen. And his name was Chad. He starts playing and strumming, changes everything, starts playing music that everyone would notice. And then pretty soon, the form shouldn't have worked, but 1,500 students were singing at the top of their lungs. Shouldn't have, because the form, form didn't match what, what we were expecting. It didn't meet our checklist. It wasn't perfect. I sat in a South African church on that same trip we stopped in London and saw worship happen with a five-gallon bucket turned upside down in a rock. And it was incredible. Does it meet our form of worship? Not at all. I've, I've listened as a room of recovering drug addicts pray for each other. The glory of God was there, even though some of them were still coming down from their highs. It didn't matter what they were. It didn't matter their form. What mattered was their heart. I've been on the flip side where sermons and worship bands are nitpicked over every single word and comma and chord that's played. And there's a debrief after every single service about how we can do things better because if we don't do things better, the magic won't happen. It's a scary place to be because what happens is there's so much pressure to have everything perfect and what you start thinking about is having everything go this certain way that you love your perfection more than you love the person you're worshiping. The glory left because it couldn't remain in the midst of those heart conditions. It couldn't remain in the midst where you, the heart condition is hard. Later, Ezekiel starts talking about a heart, God's going to replace your heart and give you a heart of flesh. He's going to give you the right heart that can seek him, that God's glory can be abounding in you. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. But this is what Ezekiel's pointing at. It's not your form. that's going to bring the glory of God. In fact, you're so focused on the form that the glory of God left the temple and it's heading to Babylon. That's why Ezekiel saw him in Babylon. So why did this happen is the last question. Why did this happen? And and it it happened because of iniquity, uh, the iniquity of the people of of Israel. In Ezekiel 8, 17, he he said to me, have you seen this son of man? He's talking to God, he's talking to Ezekiel. Is it a trivial matter that the people of Judah to do the detestable things that they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with, uh, with violence and continually arouse my anger? Look at them putting the branch to their nose. In Ezekiel 9, he says this, he answered me, The sin of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say, the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. In Ezekiel 11, And you will know that I am the Lord. 
For you have not followed my decrees or kept my laws, but you have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. So the clear life-giving water and simplicity of truth, of devotion to Christ, had become, material, had become materialism, and the materialism have dis, has displaced their generosity. Violence had displaced peace. Oppression had displaced justice. In the life of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, through Hebrew Scriptures, you see them go from slaves, and then you see them go to slaveholders. They forgot where they came from. And the Solomon takes the nation, it's the peak of their glory, takes the nation and he starts becoming arms dealers. They start getting in the war business. They're in, they're, they're, they're a superpower now. And God's saying, look, you've been doing this and you've forgotten about me. They're still gathering in the temple. They still had the Ark of the Covenant. They had the right building and God was in that building but the glory wasn't going to remain there as the operating force when violence and greed and oppression and bloodshed were the order of the day. God says, I can't, I can't do this. There's one reason why it left. There was also decay in Ezekiel chapter 5. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set the center of the nations with all the countries around. Yet in her wickedness, she, had, she has rebelled against my laws and the decrees, more than the nations of the countries around her. She has rejected my laws and not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you have become more unruly than the nations around you, and you have not followed the decrees of my laws. You have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Now there's a translation thing. When we read this, the translation should say, nation of the the world around you. Sometimes they mess up with the translations and they say, you're different than the other nations. As if to say, the debate in Hebrew is, you're worse than the other nations. Or it can say, you're just as bad as the other nations. So depending on what Bible translation you have, you'll see two different translations there. In other words, what what he's saying here is I've called you to be a light to the rest of the world. This is what Mount Sinai is about. This is what the call to Israel is about. I called you to be a light to the world, but instead of being a light, what's happening here is you're darker than the rest of the world. You're darker than the people. You have no light. I shared with you the most dreaded question that I get as a pastor. It's when I'm on, on an airplane. It happened two weeks ago when I was flying down to go fishing with a buddy. Uh, or it happened on the golf course the last time I was able to play golf. It's the, so, what do you do? Oh, how do I answer this and actually be, have a friend at the end of this four-hour golf trip game or this three-hour flight? It, it, it's the question, it's, and when I answer it, it's always met with silence. Why? Because people don't believe the things that are true about Jesus because that's not what they see about Christians. They don't believe that Jesus is about justice and mercy and compassion, loving enemies, about good art, about friendship, about long meals, about generosity and hope and grace. That's not the picture that people get when they think of Jesus. Instead, they think of Jesus, about a bun- they think of Jesus like he's a bunch of ang- angry white people who all vote one way, who condemn and point fingers and carry angry signs and disapprove of literally everything. And in that description, I believe there is nothing about Jesus in that description. There's nothing glorious about any of those. Because oftentimes, or what's happening now, is the reputation of the church is just as bad as the people that the church preaches against. 
That's the reputation we have, the glory that many people has left. This is what was happening with Israel. They're just as bad as the nations around them. They're no longer light. The glory has gone. I don't blame some of these people for the ideas and the looks that I get when I tell them what they do. I don't blame them. I understand that's where they come from. Because that's the Jesus that, that sometimes, that, uh, that's, that's the form of Jesus that these people will ever see. And that's what they're used to. At the root of all of this, at the root of the decay, at the root of, of the iniquity, is idolatry. This is the root problem that's happening in Israel. They left their primary calling and gone to something else, and the glory left. In Ezekiel 8, this is when the, the glory starts to leave. They're worshiping all kinds of unclean animals, and it wasn't that they were just worshiping them. They carved them on the side of the temple, and there's decay on the temple because of it. God tells Ezekiel to put, put his hand on the temple, and when he puts his hand on the temple, the temple begins to crumble right in front of him. In in 8.14, there's women weeping for Tammuz, that that statue god. It's the goddess of fertility. This is what they're weeping for. In in chapter 8.16, the group of elders, the 70 elders that would have formed the church there are facing east, worshiping the sun. All of these represent Israel and their accommodation of false gods and and turning their back on the one true God. They sought hope from these instead of seeking hope from God. And this is what it all begins. This is the root cause of why the glory left. You become what you worship. What you spend your time thinking about is what you will become like. You become what you worship. You will look like what you focus on. The glory of God departed because the nation of Israel, who was supposed to be different from every other nation, began to look, act, and worship just like every other nation on earth. And here's my fear when I read Ezekiel. My fear is this, that Bethany has the... I fear that this becomes a reality in our time, when Bethany is started to look as a place that like used to be something great. That when people drive by and see, oh yeah, that's where Bethany used to meet. Oh yeah, that's where this used to happen. And it's all past tense. That's a place where people used to belong. That's a place where, used to, where people used to become closer to Jesus, used to find community, used to have all of these things. And now it's nothing. My fear is that we become so uh, focused on form, so focused on doing the right thing just and never actually falling in love with Jesus that it becomes nothing. My hope is that when people interact with you throughout the week, they see a glimpse of God's glory in the way you live, in the way you respond, in the way you smile. They catch a whiff of the aroma of Christ. My hope for you is that throughout your week you develop a way of worshiping Jesus that you become more and more like him and you become the same things, you become known for the same things that Jesus is known for. Uh, This week I spent, we've spent a lot of time here, me and a lot of other people, we spent a lot of time here and I was walking around the neighborhood yesterday, we did the yard sale and I was putting up signs and as I walked down 24th, there's a driveway. If, if you could take this wall out, there's a driveway right there. And it, it, it goes all the way to 24th. You can drive a car right into this back wall if there was no fence. And as I looked up, I was like, oh, there's, there's, the, there's the homestead. There's where we meet. 
And here's the deal. If you were to raise the screen, and I tried to do this today, but that curtain is stuck. There's a stained glass. And on the back of the stained glass, it's a beautiful stained glass after service. Go up there and check it out. Uh, We're going to find a way to move all this stuff. But there's a stained glass, and there's a cross. You can see the cross from 24th. And I I sat there, and I I blocked someone's driveway when they're trying to back out, because I was like, oh, that's cool. There's another project for us to do. But... Uh, because I got this, this sense, there's a bunch of people who are driving by all the time, and they're looking for something. They're looking for the glory of God. They're looking for God's goodness, but they can't often see the glory display, displayed in our life because they're, we either, they're in, we're in such a hurry, there's things blocking it, we're chasing the wrong things, and so we miss the cross that is apparent to anyone who just walks by and looks. So I'm wondering this, when people walk by you, just like when they walk down the street and never notice the cross, do they notice Jesus? When people spend time with you, do they notice an ever-increasing glory of God that comes from you? They're not going to use the phrase glory of God, that's totally a church phrase, but do they sense something about you that might be different? Or is there so much stuff in our lives and the world around us or around them that they're so busy that they never pause? We've been here for three years and I've never paused long enough to look at the backside and see the cross. And it's a condemnation against me, but it's also a challenge to every single one of us. Do we display Jesus to people who are looking for him? Or has the glory departed? My fear that I have is that the glory departs and the only way that the glory doesn't depart is that God breathes into us new life and we'll see later in Exodus, he takes the decaying places and the hearts of stone and breathes on them with the spirit and those become new and new life comes and and flesh is added to bone and bone and the stands up and it's this Exodus or Ezekiel 36 moment where God revives a death, dead and dying, decaying nation. I'm not saying we're dead and decaying. I'm not saying you're like that. It's a warning to us that we don't let the glory of God slowly backwards walk out of our lives and we never even notice it. That we pay attention to what God is doing so that we don't become something that used to be great, like the Colosseum, or used to be great. Would you pray with me? Father, We thank you for your glory. We thank you that you choose us to display your glory. Father, this is a a big challenge. This entire book is about how one nation represented that, that can represent us failed to pay attention to what your glory was doing and it left. Lord, I pray that it would not leave us, that we would take notice, that we would be full displays of your glory. And when people walk by us, they would notice differences, that they would see your goodness, that they would see your glory. Lord, would you take our hearts of stone or the the places in our hearts that are turning to stone, hard hearts that you can't do anything with, would you take those and begin to replace them with hearts of flesh? where there could be life, where there could be goodness that's displayed. And so God, I pray that you would, that your spirit would move through us right now. 
that where your spirit is, we find freedom. And where your spirit is, we find an increasing glory instead of a glory that fades away. Let your glory increase. And may that cross be a, a beacon for people who need to find your hope. It's in your name we pray.